the first chapter of John, remembering the first 18 verses were the prologue or the introduction to the gospel and what the gospel's going to reveal. And we got down last time to about verse 16. So we've looked and saw, we've been introduced to the Word of God who was with God, who was God, who created all things. By Him all things consist. He's eternal. Uh, he, he is God. We've been introduced to Him. We've saw His working and His power. We've saw John the Baptist who was a witness for this light, this life, this Word of God in this world. And we've saw uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word being made flesh. So this eternal God is going to be made into a person just like you and I. And you know, our life begins when we're born. We're a, a new creation, if you'll have it, in the flesh. But the Word of God didn't begin when He was born. The man, Jesus Christ, and when we say Jesus Christ, we're referring to the actual human being that walked on the face of the earth. His life, naturally, it began in Bethlehem. But He was the incarnate Word of God from eternity. The Word is going to be made flesh and dwell among us. So He was a man, but He was also God. He was God and man together in one. In Him, the Bible says, it pleased God that in Him should dwell the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So in Christ, there was God. John's going to bear witness of Him in verse 15. This was He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. We'll dig into the nuances of that when we get on down into chapter 1. We're going to start here shortly with John's testimony. And of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. So this is the fullness of the Word of God. I heard it put this way, and I've said this before. I believe it's very good. But if uh, uh, one of these rich men, if Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, he could go out and eat and, and he could tip from his riches, or he could give a tip according to his riches... And if he's going to tip according to his riches, well, he's got, in, in my ability to understand, a near uh, unlimited amount of money that he could give. And so when, when you look at this, here is the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when, when we're referring to the fullness of the Word of God, how, how much does the Word of God have? Remembering that he took five loaves and two fishes and what seemed to be one little boy's lunch turned into a, a basket that the bottom was never reached. And at the very end, after 5,000 men, not counting women and children, had eaten of that one boy's lunch, they collected 12 baskets of leftovers. They took up more leftovers than they had in the very beginning. So what kind of fullness does the Lord Jesus Christ have? And you know, that's what the church has received. The fullness of the salvation, of the righteousness, of the perfection 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been imputed unto the church. And Paul can write in Romans, what shall separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ? Paul can write in Romans with all assurance, there is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Because we've received of His fullness and grace for grace. So I believe this is going to tie with seven, or verse 17, yes. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So let me read those two together. I should have done that just then, and I'm sorry. And of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So you see how the law, the law was, uh, I realize, because it brings me under condemnation. We think of the law as our enemy. The law is not our enemy. The law was our friend. It was our schoolmaster. It was there in, he says in Galatians, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So as I go down, if we just look at the Ten Commandments, and I start at commandment one, and I read down through there, and I lay my behavior, my life beside that. When we get to the end of the law, where does that leave me at? Well, I've broken the law. I'm guilty. I need a means for me to be found righteous. I need a sacrifice. I need a Savior. I need a ransom to deliver me from this darkness. So the law was not an enemy. It was a great grace of God that was given to the children of Israel. That when the rest of the Gentile world thought that God accepted them the way they were, they had a knowledge that they could not be accepted the way they were. They had sacrifices and all types and shadows to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the law was good. The law was perfect. The law was holy. The law was of God. Paul says in Corinthians, for if the ministration of condemnation was glorious, the law was glorious. But you know what there was? There was no means for me to keep that. The law was good. The law was from God. The law was holy. But the law was set in stone. It was written in stone. It was set in stone. And it was, you do this, and you can live, but if you break it, you're going to die. That's right. It was do good and live and take part of the blessings, but if you break these, you're cursed. And so because of that and the weakness of our flesh, no, there's no problem with the law. The law's not the enemy. You know where the enemy is? The weakness of our sinful and wicked, and evil-inclined flesh. We couldn't keep the law. And there was nothing in the law to help me to keep it. The law was a standard. We didn't measure up, and we were guilty. But the Lord Jesus brought grace for grace. So that word for there, 
It means opposite. That is instead or because of. So Christ brought grace instead of grace. You might could say grace on top of grace. But He brought that that reached into the inner part of man. That as legion, we've already heard about legion. As you look at legion and you see Him, He was unable to be tamed. The chains couldn't hold him. The law couldn't hold him. You could tell him, now if you do that, God's not going to be happy. You ever tell your children that? God's not happy with that kind of behavior. And you know what they're inclined to do? To do it again, even with that knowledge. The chains of man cannot restrain the evil that's within him. I'm going to do better. I have foolishly thought... After salvation, if man's honest, I believe everybody, I'll never do that again. I'm ashamed that I did that. I'll never do that again. And before you know it, there we are. And I'm doing it again. And I think, my God, what am I doing? That's the way we are. We're evil. And we're sinful. And we're not able. But you know, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it's deeper than just a chain to try to chain me down. It's deeper than just a law. But God works in the inward man, in the heart of man, where the corruption and where the filth is. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ takes out the heart of stone and gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh. He casts out the devils and moves in the Spirit. And not just the Spirit, His Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit of God sets up abode. He doesn't just tell me what I can and can't do, but He changes my desires that now I love God and I want to please Him. More than just a law, but grace for grace. It was grace that made me guilty. I believe Paul, when he wrote Romans, I believe that's what he was saying. The grace of God brought him to a place that his sin was exceeding sinful. But it was grace on top of grace that brought me out of my sinfulness, changed my wicked desires, and put me in the family of God. It was not my move that allowed grace to bring me into the family of God. That that is falsely, and if, if you listen, a lot of times that's the way it's put, that if you'll come, then God will. That's not the way it works. My move was a result of the acting of the grace of God on the inward man. And it was grace that brought me to Him It was grace that made me a new creature. If you're not careful, you're going to be begging unregenerate and unawakened people to the altar and you can lay another chain on them and in a day or two they'll break it and they'll be back in the tombs. We need a work of God. It's not a work of man. It is not a work of man. Remember, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, not of blood, but of God.
So the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, we've read this several times. Daniel read it just a little while back. Greg read it. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You can look in Ephesians chapter 2. You can look in 1 Peter. Uh, you can look in Corinthians. And you're going to find a list of the condition of man. And you know what that condition was? That was a sinful condition with a knowledge of judgment, with a knowledge of hell, with a knowledge of what God said was good, and with a knowledge of what God said was evil. And we went over top every bit of that and lived just like the Scriptures say. That was our inclination. That was the will of the weakness of the flesh. But you know what's going to happen in Titus and in Ephesians and in Corinthians? In Corinthians he says, Such were some of you, but you're washed. You used to live like that, but the Holy Ghost has done a work. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, but after the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. And in Titus, I'm sorry, I just quoted Titus, not Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy, wherewith He loved us. And so God is acting on sinful man that's bringing him out of that natural state, the state of his flesh, the fallen condition of man. God's grace is bringing man out of that and bringing him to Himself. Every bit of it is a work of God Almighty through the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. So that God's bringing man to this. God's changing man. Not do this and live. Don't do it and die. That's the law. Come to the altar and live. That's the law. You do good today and you murder tomorrow. You make clean the outside, but the inside's filled with dead men's bones. We've got no hope on our own. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace for grace. If grace is left out, there's no hope. Listen to this, 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So notice how this work happens here. We've got elect according to foreknowledge. This is before everything happened. This is before the foundation of the world. God chose to show us mercy. We received that mercy that was already foreordained that we would receive. It came to us through the channel of an act, through sanctification of the Spirit. So purifying, cleansing, washing. What's going to happen? Well, here I am, a sinner, a lost and undone, filthy and evil inclined sinner, but the Holy Spirit's going to come and cleanse me. He's going to wash away the filth and the deception that's in my mind and in my heart. Sanctification of the Spirit. And when that happens, unto obedience. When the Spirit sanctifies, we might just say conviction. 
That might be the way we would put it. But what's happening is all the lies and deceit and the power and control that the devil had over us our whole life to that point, God is by the Spirit purifying us from all the filth of this world, bringing us to a knowledge of the truth. When God does that work, it leads unto obedience. What's a man that's convicted by the Holy Ghost of God? What's that man do? What'd you do when God convinced you? You came to him. What did you do when God con- What did you do when God convinced you? You came to him. You were obedient to him. Ain't it amazing how that works? See, it's by the working of God. God convinced unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So that is my obedience required? My obedience is absolutely required. I have to come to the gospel. You know something, Joseph? You can't hear it when he calls me. Right. And you know, and you've got to obey him, do what he says. Mm-hmm. And nobody in this church can hear when he calls me. Right. Because he's going to call me individual to be saved. And you have to respond to that. Sure, you do. But by the Scriptures, He's going to call individually. And when He's calling, when He's convicting, when He's drawing, you will affirmatively respond to the call of God. I have to respond. I absolutely do. But His call through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So the, the obedience is tied to the sanctification of the Spirit. When the Spirit is working and drawing, and who's He drawing? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. He's drawing those that He's chosen from the foundation of the world. When He draws them, when He persuades them, when He convicts them, they'll respond affirmatively and He'll apply the blood of the Lord Jesus and cleanse their sin and iniquity. So what did the Lord Jesus bring? He accomplished a completed salvation at the cross of Calvary and at the resurrection from the tomb. So much so that Paul could write maybe 20, 30 years after the Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven that when the Lord got up, We got up with Him. Not just Paul, but we got up with Him. You see, God's not waiting on it to happen in order to know it's going to happen. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. But God declares the end from the beginning. When God says it, it's as good as done. Though I may not see it yet, I can rest assured that God has said it and it will be. There's no way that it can't be done. He can't lie. We're not talking about mom and daddy at the house. We're talking about eternal, perfect, pure, glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing God Almighty. And man says, I just don't understand that. I don't either. You can't figure it out. 
He's as high as the heavens are above the earth. Above me. But I tell you what I've got. I've got Scripture. I ought to just believe what God says. Because I can't figure it out on my own. And so we've received of His fullness, grace for grace. Not the fullness of the church. Well, when the church gets full, then people are going to be saved. No, it's of, it's of His fullness that I received. <coughs> This might be hard to swallow. Whether the church is full or not, God's going to save His elect, period. He already knows that. They cannot die lost. Not one hair on their head shall fall to the ground. Without his knowledge. That that ought to bring great assurance. It it ought to. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So by that scripture, nobody knows God of his own accord or of his own knowledge. No man's seen Him. No man's ever laid eyes on Him. You know, you could look in Deuteronomy when Moses is recalling what God did on Mount Sinai, when, when God spoke to Moses in Exodus out of the burning bush. He never saw God. And when God laid His hand on him, all he saw was His hinder parts. What Isaiah saw in the temple was the train, the hinder parts of the Lord's garment. And that's all, if, if God has revealed anything to us, that's all we've ever seen too. No man of his own power has any intimate knowledge of God Himself. You know, there's somebody, there's people on the earth that went to kindergarten with the president. There's people that went to primary school with uh, Putin in Russia. There's people that grew up with a knowledge of the Queen of England and the King. That's just the way life is. But nobody grew up around God. Nobody ever laid eyes on Him. You can't go to your cousin. I, I read an obituary. The cousin of uh, NASCAR's Dick Trickle. He died in Mars Hill. You know, you could go to him and say, what was, what was that like? What did he say about racing? They knew each other. They were family. But you can't go to somebody and say, you knew God, you've seen Him. Is that not the truth? So how are we going to know anything about God? You know, this is the point I'm trying to make. Somebody that grew up with Putin or with Biden somebody that went to primary school with him or middle school, you might go talk to them and they say, you know, when he was a kid, this is what he liked to do. This is the way he grew up. This was his favorite food then and they might be able to impart to you some knowledge of the man because they knew him. Man doesn't have that knowledge on his own. Do you know how we know God? 
He's been declared to us. The revelation of God to man was through the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's writing by inspiration of the Spirit, you're not going to go to where God's at and see Him. You can't find out God on your own. You can't get to Him. But God has revealed Himself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I know that God loves me? I'm not going to go to God and talk to Him about it. Not in the flesh now. How do I know that? For God so loved the world that He gave... I can see the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That God sent His only begotten into the world. The only begotten Son willingly gave His life for our sins that we could be brought into the family of God. God commended His love and that He gave His Son. So that love of God was revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look in Luke chapter 10 verse 22. All things are delivered to me of my Father. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Would would you think about that? Now this is the Lord teaching in Luke. And the Lord says, nobody knows the Son but the Father. Nobody knows the Father but the Son. And He to whom the Son reveals. So this knowledge of God, it's not something... And let's, let's be clear. There can be a head knowledge of God. An understanding of heaven and of judgment and of hell. Of sin and of righteousness. But to come into a real intimate, saving knowledge of God. To be brought out of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son. To be passed from death unto life, as John will write later on in his gospel. In order to have that knowledge, that doesn't come by learning. That's not in man naturally. But the only people that know God in that way are those whom the Son reveals Him to. And the only way man comes to the knowledge of the Son is those whom God reveals the Son to. Remember in Matthew, and we quote this Scripture often, but there's Peter. (coughs) The disciples say, well, some people say that you're Elijah. And some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that, that you're one of the other prophets. And Jesus said to His disciples, Who do ye say that I am? And Peter's great confession there, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says there, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, 
but my Father which is in heaven. You see, what man thought of Jesus was that he was John the Baptist risen from the dead or some great prophet of the old. When you get down to it, they did not know who the Lord was. He was the Christ, the anointed one. He was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. He was the Lamb of God that had come to take away the sin of the world and man did not know who he was. But Peter did. How did Peter know? God had revealed the Son unto him. Now that's what the Bible says. So wouldn't it be a fair estimate to say that those that didn't know who the Son was, the Father had not revealed the Son to them. The Lord's going to say in Matthew, I thank thee, O Father, that you've hid this from the wise and the prudent and you've revealed it to babes. The educated and the, the mighty and the, the, those in the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, they were blind to who the Lord Jesus was. But the ignorant fishermen and the little publican and the nothings of the world, God had revealed His Son to them and delivered them. It's to the glory of God alone that anybody knows who the Lord is. John 17, here's the Lord, they call this the high priestly prayer. Verse 26, I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. So how did they know his name? The Lord Jesus Christ had declared it unto them. What was the purpose? This is amazing. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me. Remember the Son, He was in the bosom of the Father. Even here in this verse 18, the only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father. You know where the Son came from? From the heart of the Father. What kind of love did God the Father have for God the Son? They were as one. And Jesus says that the love that you've loved me with may also be in them. What kind of love does God have for those that are His children? <clears throat> the same as God had for the eternal Son of God. And He shed that abroad through Him. In 1 John chapter 5, we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. So any knowledge of God, it's not experiential, it's not educational, it's not gained from bloodline, it's not gained by IQ score. But knowledge of God is revealed from God. Knowledge, and I'm talking about saving. Can I know the Ten Commandments? Can I memorize the 23rd Psalm? Can I memorize the uh, 20th chapter of Matthew? We absolutely can have knowledge like that. But to really be able... You know, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had knowledge <laughs> like that of the Old Testament. But they didn't know the Lord Jesus. 
So to have real knowledge and know God, it's through the declaration of the Son, the revelation of the Son by the Spirit of God. So now let's start. That, that finishes the introduction of the first chapter of John. Let's look now. We'll read a few verses together, and I think that's going to be the best way to cover um, this as we go through the book. Verse 19, And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. I don't believe we'll get to walk down through all this. So here's we're going to begin the narrative. It's going to begin at John the Baptist. And there, John the Baptist's ministry, remember his miraculous birth to a, a, a woman that was up in years and had been barren her whole life. And he's, she's going to get pregnant. Zachariah's mouth is going to be shut in the temple. When he's born, they're going to name him John. There's going to be this big service down at the temple. Zacharias is going to praise God by the Spirit for his works. There's a lot of to-do around John the Baptist's birth. It's the talk of the town at Jerusalem. And so as John grows and gets older, he goes out and we know he wears a linen girdle. He's out in the wilderness. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And this wild-looking man is preaching repentance and baptism in the water. And again, this man's the talk of the town. People remember, you know how it is today. Here's this wild man out in the wilderness and they say, you, you heard about that man preaching out there? What's going on with him? Well, he's, he, remember he's Zacharias and Elizabeth's son. You remember how he was born? He, he may be some prophet or something. We, we just don't know what to make of him just yet. We don't know what he is. We don't know what he's doing. You see the old men at the gas station? That's what they're talking about. You see the people at the restaurants, at family gatherings, they're discussing this man John. There's noise in the town. Something's going on. This could, we could be seeing the fulfillment of the promises of God in our day. That's what the talk of the town is. And it got to the place that priests and Levites, these weren't run-of-the-mill people. These weren't the lay members down at the church but they sent out the, the, the priests, the clergy of the church. It'd be like us getting a group of pastors. Go out there and talk to that man and try to figure out what he's doing. Well, they've got the priests and Levites together and they've said, go out there and talk to John and see what he says that he is. We know he's preaching and he's preaching repentance and we know that he's baptizing people in the water. And this is just wild stuff. We need to know what's going on, whether he's from God or not, whether he's the Messiah or not. They, we, they don't know what he's doing. So I, I read this in a couple different places. 
I can't say whether it's for sure or not, but this baptism in water, that when a Gentile wanted to be proselyted in to the Jewish family, he had to be circumcised and he had to be baptized in water. Both symbols of cleansing off the filthiness of the Gentiles and being brought into uh, the family of God, per se, of the Old Testament. And John's here in Jerusalem preaching repentance and baptism, and he's preaching it to Israelites. He's preaching it to Judeans and to Benjamites, and he's going to preach it to the priests and the Levites and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And what that's doing, that's putting real Israelites in the same place as the proselytes. You see what I'm saying? So it's putting everybody in a place of uncleanness. The Gentiles, they need to be cleansed in order to be brought into the family of God. They knew that from the Old Testament. But this is something greater than the Old Testament. The kingdom of God's being ushered in. The Messiah is here. On, he's on the earth as this is going on. We're going to see that. And so John's saying everybody needs cleansed. Not just the Gentiles and not just the wicked, but everybody's going to have to be washed. We're all guilty before God. And that was his job. He's bearing witness to the Son. So they're going to send Levites to Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? We want to know who you are. And we want to know what you're doing. And He confessed. So to assent or to acknowledge and denied not, contradict, disavow or reject. John's not going to take any credit... At no time is John going to claim to be anything. What was John's job? Remember in the prologue? What was John's job? Back up to verse number 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness. John's job was to bear witness of the light, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not going to take any credit nor draw attention to himself. But he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they come and say, John, who are you? Right off the bat, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one you need to be looking to. I'm not the one that's going to bring salvation. So in uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 15... John may not go into the great detail in other places. In Luke, we can see this. And as the people... This is Luke 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. So see, I wasn't making it up. All men are musing. They're rolling this over in their mind and in their heart. Whether this man John was the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. They didn't know. And John, verse 16, John answered saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So John 
does not allow them to ponder that forever. He's not some man of mystery. <clears throat> He's open and up front. I'm not the Lord Jesus. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Christ was not a name. That was a title. It meant the anointed one. So when John says, I'm not the Christ, he's saying, I'm not the anointed one. And that was a reference to Old Testament prophecies. I'm not the Savior that was promised. And so, naturally, he's not answered any questions. And so, they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. So Elias, Elijah in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So by the Old Testament scripture, Elijah's going to be a, a, a last day figure. He's going to be an eschatological figure. He's going to come before this day comes. So well, if you're not the Christ, then are you Elijah? They're going off a knowledge of the Old Testament. And John says, I'm not. So his answers are getting shorter and shorter. But here's the hard thing to understand. In, in Matthew eleven fourteen, And if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. That's what the Lord said of John the Baptist. In Matthew 17, verse 10, And his disciples asked him, saying, why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? That's what the Old Testament said. That Elijah had to come first. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Then they understood that he spake to them of John the Baptist. So they ask, are you Elijah? And John says, no, I'm not Elijah. So Jesus says that he was Elijah. But in Luke, this is the way it's worded, and I believe here's the answer. Luke 1.17, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people for the Lord. <clears throat> so, as John's out in the wilderness preaching, was John Elijah raised from the dead? He, he was not. He was John the Baptist. The angel said his name is John. He was not the man Elijah. But he was in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. He was the forerunner of Christ. So when, when the Pharisees and the Levites and the priests, when they say, are you Elijah? That, that's what they're asking. Are you Elijah brought back from the dead? When he says no, he says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm John the Baptist. But he is the fulfillment of of the prophecy that they were thinking of, the spiritual fulfillment. He was in the spirit and power of Elijah preaching the gospel of repentance, preparing the way of the Lord. 
and I, that's a quote from Isaiah. We'll see that in just a minute. But art thou that prophet? We're back in John 1, verse 21. Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. So that prophet, a reference to Deuteronomy chapter number 18, and in verse 15, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. So this is Moses speaking here. And this was a promise that there was going to be a prophet out of the children of Israel that would be like unto Moses. Now he's going to be far exceedingly greater than Moses. He's going to not lead them out of Exodus, out of Egypt, but He's going to deliver them from their sins and grant them an eternal salvation. But that's the prophecy that they're referencing here. So are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet that Moses spoke of? And he answered no. So John is taking no credit, no glory, no honor unto himself. Then they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest of thyself? So they needed an answer. They were sent to find out. You remember they sent soldiers to the Lord to to take him. And they said, No man spake like this man. Well, here these men have come to find out who John is and They can't go back without something to tell and report back to the Sanhedrin. And so they say, what say you of yourself? Then who do you say that you are? And he's going to quote Scripture. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. So if you look back in Isaiah, you've got a time that God's going to deliver the children of Israel and bring them out of captivity. And He's crying and saying, uh, make the curve straight, cast the rocks out of the road, because God's going to bring deliverance for the people. Make the road clear so that the people can come out uh, out of their captivity. So that's what John's doing. He's preaching repentance. You know the first obstacle to somebody being saved? In order to repent, though, something's got to happen in order for a man to even think about repenting. He's going to have to be convicted of his sin. He must be persuaded that he's a sinner. What's John the Baptist preaching? You've got to repent. You're a sinner. You've broken the commandment of God. You need to be baptized. You need to be cleansed. You need to be immersed. When you hear the word baptized, that's, that's original Greek language. There was no way to translate that to English. There wasn't an English word that fit with it. So we use the actual Greek, baptismo, to baptize. But when you read that, the word means to immerse, to be fully whelmed, to make fully wet. That's what it means. So when John says you must be baptized, 
you must be dipped completely under. Because we're corrupt through and through. There's not one part without sin. He's revealing the need of redemption and salvation. And verse 24, And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. Now notice this. John could have, John could have said, I am Elijah, and brought glory to himself. They would, have, they would have been more focused on John then. John's not looking for any focus on him. The one scripture that he does quote and give them is I'm the one preparing the way for the Lord. The Lord's coming. That's John's message the whole time. The Lord is coming and it's Him that you ought to look to and that you ought to see. And I'm five minutes over.